Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest vox casting either side of the breach. Tonight's episode brings us the conclusion of High Noon. In the last installment, Colonel Noon had been called to Malifaux's hinterlands to root out Marcus, the Arcanist agent suspected of disrupting progress on a guild fort in the region. Through the judicious application of force, he was able to extract information from a local MNSU facility manager. With reinforcements on their way from Malifaux, the stage is set for an expedition into the wild in search of Marcus and his army of ferocious beasts. I hope you enjoy today's story, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Malifaux Safaris. Our armor-plated steam coach, which we call Big Bertha Mark VI, is the perfect way to view the flora and fauna of Malifaux's wilderness in total safety. Your guide for each trip is a genuine Malifaux Wrangler equipped with a blunderbuss that can take down all but the very largest and nastiest of Malifaux's animal inhabitants. Please do not inquire about the whereabouts of Big Bertha's 1 through 5. We have been over that many times in the local press and consider the matter closed. The wings in the air told him they had set out. He saw it through local eyes, sharper than any humans. Twenty men in two columns of ten, armed with rifles. Each man carried bedrolls, rations, water. Everything they needed for a lengthy expedition. The guild commander intended to spend as long as necessary on the mountain to find him. Marcus grinned, baring his teeth. They wouldn't have to look hard. In his palm was a chunk of stone. Not chilled bedrock like before, but smooth and shaped granite that was foreign to this region, transported over great distance, shaped by hand and still holding traces of the sun's heat. Lime mortar encrusted one edge. His agent had brought it to him just before dawn. It was a message. They were ready. The going was not easy, but Noon had never expected it to be. The ground was uneven and treacherous with loose scree, and there were no paths here. He had split the men into two columns, with scouts at the front to find the easiest route. 
Those behind would follow their guide's footsteps, like two guild centipedes winding their way into the mountain. There had been some jocularity amongst the men at first when the sun had barely appeared over the horizon, but the rising heat and constant climb had soon knocked it out of them. Now their heads were down, trudging and sweating as they worked slowly higher and higher. Five scouts ranged ahead of the guardsmen, watching for mountain lions and other unpleasant surprises that Marcus might have laid in store for them. By now he was sure to know they were coming. The scream was long overdue. Noon looked up to see a scout pitch backwards off a ridge and fall seventy feet onto rocks. The body was twisted and lifeless when they reached it, the back of his head broken in from the fall. He must have slipped, one of the guardsmen said. Noon saw the deep talon marks across his cheeks and scalp, the wet, empty eye sockets. You finally showed your hand, eh, Marcus? he murmured. Sergeant! The NCO appeared at his shoulder. Spread the word, Sergeant. From now on, I want every animal we see shot. Every bird in the sky. Every snake, jackrabbit, mouse, insect, everything. We will assume that they are all agents of the Arcanist Renegade and kill them on sight. Yes, sir. Noon took a swallow from his canteen and resumed the climb. Let's see how well you do when I remove your eyes, he thought. Captain Bridger waited for a figure to emerge from the haze. The clanking and hissing of the peacekeepers was now very loud, but the movement of such heavy machinery, plus the tramping of hundreds of boots, had swallowed the entire reinforcement column in a dust cloud from the moment they reached the edge of the plain. For the past ten hours, Bridger had been marking their progress by the slowly approaching vortex. A greatcoat and goggled visor swam out of the dust, followed by a second, then a third, then a dozen more. The men were all the colour of sand, their woollen clothing coated from travelling through such arid country. As they drew closer, they identified a captain among the troopers, and straightened into a salute. The other officer drew up and returned it, then pulled an olive-coloured bandana from around his mouth. "'Captain Bridger?' he asked. "'I'm Captain Ermine. We are reinforcements, as requested by Colonel Noon.' "'Very pleased to see you, Captain Ermine,' Bridger said squeezing the other man's hand and grinning despite the swirling dust. Columns of men were marching past on both sides. Where is the colonel? He's on the mountain! Bridger had to shout as an enormous construct clanked and stomped past, dangling chains and blowing superheated steam. He's gone after the renegade! Captain Ermin nodded. I wanted to speak with him about our deployment orders! I have everything you need back in my command tent, Bridger said, if you'll come with me. The two men fell into step. Steam carriages were rolling past, pulling trailers filled with rifles and cannons. Bridger saw crates of ammunition, barrels of water, rations jutting out from under tarpaulins, as more and more wagons rattled past them. Something low and sleek and dangerous looking loped by, its feral head swinging briefly in their direction, before it vanished into the haze with a swirl of its metal tail. A hunter? Bridger asked. It was Captain Ermin's turn to grin. We've got twelve of them. They'll make short work of Marcus' little pets, believe me. That's assuming they can find them, Bridger said. What's that? 
We haven't had a single attack in over 24 hours, Bridger explained. Right after the colonel requisitioned 20 of my men to go up the mountain, the animals disappeared. It's like the whole plane is suddenly deserted. Even the rattlers have gone. Good, Ehrman said. The colonel's got them on the run. I hope you're right, Captain Bridger said. But the uneasy feeling in the pit of his stomach told him that things had somehow taken a turn for the worst. They lost another five men before they reached El Dado. Three were bitten by rattlesnakes. A fourth was found after a latrine visit with his head all but chewed off by an unknown carnivore, and the fifth was just a careless fool who lost his footing and fell. Other than the three rattlesnakes, which were hacked to pieces by guardsmen machetes, they hadn't seen another animal since Noon had issued his orders to shoot them on sight. At least they hadn't seen any they could reach. A handful of black specks circled way up high in the deep blue of the sky, much higher than the mountain, far beyond any rifle shot. Most of the men hadn't noticed, but Noon felt their gaze on him and knew they were being watched. Noon had expected to be assaulted a dozen times during their day-long trek, but it had never come. They had passed through more than a few choke points, ideal spots for ambushes, and each time they'd come through unscathed. At first it had puzzled him, until Noon remembered what kind of man they were after. Marcus was proud, arrogant even. He wanted to show Noon that he wasn't afraid. He was waiting for them. That suited Noon just fine. Pride would prove to be a weak ally when faced with twenty breech-loading carbines. As for the saber-tooth, Noon had worked out exactly where he was going to put the skin when he transported it home. Colonel, one of the scouts shouted from up ahead. Noon followed his pointing finger. There was a thin reed of campfire smoke, unspooling from the ridge up ahead, starkly visible against the late afternoon sky. Sergeant, he said to the man at his elbow. Our renegade would have to be an idiot to think he could defeat this many men single-handed, which means he has something up his sleeve. I won't have us walking into an ambush after traveling all this distance. As you say, sir, the sergeant nodded. The men will take ten minutes to rest and eat, but post-rotating sentries, one man in five. Send the scouts over the ridge to take a look at Marcus' camp, but we don't make a move until they return. All of them. The colonel settled down on a broad rock and began to lever open a can of bully beef with his bayonet. They were so close now, there was nothing to be gained from rushing in. Marcus had shown he could wait. It seemed only fair for Noon to return the compliment. He could smell them. The stink was almost choking. They were so close. And they had stopped just shy of the ridge. Marcus sat cross-legged, his shillelagh resting on his thighs, watching the fire. It wasn't yet early evening, and still too hot to need a fire, but Marcus enjoyed the implied insult that the guild wouldn't be able to find him without an obvious smoke trail. 
The guild commander was drawing the encounter out, wanting to show him that he could be cautious. This meant nothing to Marcus. The outcome was predestined. It was inevitable. Four men had crept to the ridgeline above and behind him, and were watching him quietly. He didn't need the soaring eyes to detect them. He could hear their breathing, could hear the crackle of gravel and creak of dried vegetation under their clumsy feet. This was his mountain, and they did not belong here. They may as well have had bells tied around their necks. The dust was slowly settling down on the hills, and the camp to the south of the fort had grown exponentially. The reinforcements had arrived, and were even now busy with arranging patrols. Glints of dusty steel moved here and there in the scrubland, as clockwork predators hunted for enemies. They would find nothing. The jaws of the trap were set. All Marcus needed now was an audience. The men cleared the ridgeline in an expanding fan, rifle muzzles pointed in all directions. The scouts had reported that there was no sign of anything living on the ridge other than Marcus himself. But Noon knew there was an ambush somewhere, and kept the men on edge. However, as they spread around the yurt and the campfire, Noon saw for himself how barren the ground was up here. A promontory of rock jutted out like a finger directly ahead, commanding an impressive view of the plain below. He could see a dark smudge on the ground that must have been the fort. It looked tiny and insignificant from up here. Around the yurt was plain stone and boulders, and a hundred yards or so further back was low-stunted scrub and a few sprigs of hardy vegetation, then blue sky. There was nothing else up here. The wind picked up and twined the campfire smoke around its invisible fingers and ruffled the heavy dreadlocks that streamed down Marcus' back. He still hadn't turned although there could be no doubt he knew they were here. Noon took a good look at his enemy, this being the first time he had seen him in the flesh. He was obviously a big man. Even sitting cross-legged, he had a sizable physical presence. Naked to the waist, his dreadlocks spread across slab-like trapezius muscles. Despite his apparent strength, he only seemed to be armed with a few utilitarian knives and a thick shillelagh placed across his knees. That wouldn't aid him much against the hail of bullets. Without turning, or even taking his eyes off the crackling fire, Marcus spoke first. Intruders, he said. Your presence here offends me. There were a couple of snickers from the guardsmen spread out behind him, but the sergeant quieted them with a look. They tore open the yurt, kicking over pots and rattan mats. Why didn't you run? Noon asked standing a short distance away from the motionless darkness, his hand resting on his holstered pistol. You knew we would come for you. Run, Marcus snarled, and Noon saw how pronounced his canines were, like a beast's. This is my mountain, my land. Well, not anymore. It belongs to the guild now. Marcus' eyes moved to regard the colonel. His pupils were black, but the surrounding irises were a fiery orange. His gaze was unsettling. 
You think men with guns can take my land from me? I think we already have, Noon replied. You just don't seem to have noticed yet. He pointed over the ridge. There are hundreds of men down there with rifles and cannons. How many guns do your mountain lions have? Marcus got to his feet in a languid feline motion, his shillelagh in one big fist. The guardsmen shuffled back a few paces, and rifles were brandished, but he ignored them, walking to the edge of the promontory and frowning down at the fort. Guns won't save you, he said. Is that so? Noon queried. Your guerrilla war is over. I now have more firepower than when you began this action. With the supply wagons, my men now have food and water for six months. So poisoning the wells won't help. I have cannon for your maulers, gatling guns for your raptors. I have steel fighting machines that are worth ten of your biggest monstrosities. Come to mention it, just how much of your freakish menagerie do you have left? I seem to recall we've been shooting them all. The colonel sighed and wiped dust from his face. It was hot up here. The day had been a long one, and he was growing tired of the renegade's refusal to see sense. Before I have you shot, you should know that you have barely slowed us down. The fort will be completed on schedule, and once it is finished, my men and I shall overturn every rock in this valley until we have rooted out and executed every last arcanist between here and Malifaux. Your resistance will have been for absolutely nothing. Marcus seemed to be ignoring him, and was instead fingering a small piece of stone in his free hand. He's mad, Noon said to his sergeant. All this way for a bloody madman. Shoot him, sergeant, and let's be on our way. The light is fading. As the sergeant aimed his pistol, Marcus looked up from his contemplation and fixed the colonel with a glare of astonishing hatred. My mountain, he growled. My land. You think that guns give you power here? Witness my power. He brought down the butt of his hooked chalele on the stone at his feet, sending a piercing crack echoing across the ridge and into the valley. It distorted and reverberated, and seemed to gather strength and volume as it rumbled across the plain. Noon's eyes narrowed. Dust was jetting into the air all around the guild compound far below them, yellow geysers that blasted a hundred feet into the air. The rumbling continued to increase in volume, and he felt the rock under his feet starting to shiver perceptibly. Marcus stood with his amber eyes fixed on the valley floor, which had begun to distort and bulge. Noon couldn't believe what he was seeing. Huge sections of ground around and under the guild compound were breaking apart, cracking like a taut red-brown eggshell and falling away. Massive chunks of earth and rock, entire expanses of the land were caving in and toppling downwards. Dust exploded into the air. A vast swirling dome like a sandstorm bulged into the sky, while the rumbling and shuddering continued. Loose stones went clattering down the rocky promontory, and Noon's vision blurred while the tectonic carnage reached its zenith. Jagged black fingers spread to the northeast and southwest as the center of the valley floor fell into a widening gorge, easily a mile across. The fort, the camp, even the perimeter wall split apart and fell with it, tumbling hundreds of men and tons of equipment into the yawning blackness, 
their screams dwarfed by the heaving, protesting ground. It went on and on, the hundred million tons of stone thundering into the depths of the earth, pulverizing his men, until finally the cataclysm was obscured by the ever-expanding dust storm. Noon couldn't speak, couldn't move. Impossible. Impossible. My mountain, Marcus was roaring, both arms raised to embrace the hot rush of dust that blasted over the precipice and engulfed them all. My land. An explosion of noise hit him from behind. He spun, numb and traumatized, to see his men being dragged beneath the ground as it erupted around them. Spade-like hands rose from beneath the earth to drag men down into it. Gunshots were fired, but they were outnumbered, ambushed, surrounded. He couldn't even find the will to draw his weapon. In seconds, the screaming ended. They were all dead. His men on the mountain, the entire force at the fort. The fort was gone. The land was gone. Impossible. It was impossible. A shadow fell over him, and he turned to find burning amber eyes inches from his own. My mountain, Marcus rumbled. My land. Impossible, Noon croaked. The renegade gripped his jaw in one big hand and twisted his head to the side. Three months to build a little pile of stones, he said contemptuously, as Noon's eyes found a hulking shape coming out of the ground. These ones dug your guild grave in half that time. The thing approaching them through the dust was broader than a man, but shorter. It moved clumsily, as though not used to walking on two legs, and held one huge spade claw over its face, as if the sun pained it, even through the thick barrier of dust. He saw a broad, wet snout and tiny, bead-sized eyes. Some sort of digging animal. It looked almost like a mole. Tunnels, Noon whispered. He heard a ghost of a conversation, an echo of Captain Bridger's voice. You've posted sentries? Around the perimeter wall, yes, but somehow they keep getting into the compound. Something else was emerging from the hidden tunnel much larger than the mole thing. Six eyes the color of emeralds glinted hungrily as they approached. Colonel Noon giggled absurdly. There you are, he said abstractly. I have the perfect place for you, right in front of my fireplace. Three sets of jaws opened. Six saber teeth gleamed. My mountain, Marcus said as hot breath washed over the colonel's throat. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. 
Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.